Reading is a gift from God. Many of us take for granted that gift that He has given us. Many in the world today are unable to read, unable to read a simple sign or to comprehend a simple sentence. But for the majority of us, God has given us an immense gift, and that is the gift of reading. And when we read, we are captivated by good stories. There's nothing like a good story. Stories captivate when they're told in a compelling way. They grab the reader's attention and bring them into a world unlike their own. Good stories convey good messages. And in good stories, there's often bad things. Good stories often tell how evil is beaten by good. In many of the stories that we long to love and cherish in our own generation, uh, there are stories that often have the, uh, the hero, they have the villain, and there's some sort of reconciliation in the midst. Or a story that has some sort of plot that has a tension in it, right? A flatline story, a story that really has no compelling tension. There's no trouble in it. There's, no th- there's nothing that needs to be resolved in the story. It's just, a, just sort of a regurgitation of facts. Well, those are, by definition, textbooks, right? They're not very compelling. They often don't garner much attention. In our lives, we don't often go home and read the encyclopedia in a compelling way. Maybe perhaps some do. But the power of a story... Or the well-scripted play, when told and conveyed, or that screenwrite. It's written in a way that captivates the audience and draws them into the story. Good stories draw you in to the characters of that story. Uh, They often are written in a way that you will identify with one of the characters, whether the protagonist or the antagonist, that is the good guy or the bad guy. In pop culture, we are often drawn in to be the bad guy. We often want to see the guy destroy evil. But as you consider in our own culture, one of the other factors that makes a good story is that it endures generations. Recently, this past uh, week, a week ago, uh, was the 20th anniversary of uh, the Harry Potter series. Many, as they look at that piece of work, though it was very popular, though it endured an entire generation, many will conclude that many literary scholars, though time has not yet told this full story on it, that it is not one of those stories that will endure generations. Though some could argue that it will. A good story endures beyond the contemporary culture in which it's written in. Consider the stories that we love most, Homer, Iliad, and the Odyssey. Many movies are based on that same plot line, but yet that story was written over 2,500 years ago. We love the writings of Shakespeare today, even though they are written in English that many of us don't even understand. Or considered Tolkien and his writings and how it's endured from a World War I generation to today. Good writers, good authors communicate to their audience across a large generational gap. Consider that power of a good story, how it can draw in you, but yet also drew in your great-great-grandmother or grandfather. That same story that captivates you captivated them. Friends, we come to a, a story just like that. 
a story that has probably been read by the majority of people in this room. A story that has endured generation after generation after generation. A story that would have been told orally over and over and over again so much that most people knew the story by heart. A story that not only causes us to think about the characters and see ourselves as the characters, but a story that endures generations because it is a story that captivates our hearts. The story of redemption. The story of hope. The story of restoration. The story of Ruth. So I invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. It's a short book. Page 222 in your pew Bibles. It comes nestled between two great works, the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. I'm going to begin this morning by reading, and we're going to work our way through this. Over the next four weeks, we're just going to consider one chapter per week. I'm sure many of you have read this story. I'm sure many of our ladies probably have read this story. If not most, have you been in a Bible study? Have you even heard a sermon on this book? It's a compelling story, but what does it mean? Well, let's begin by reading. I'm going to read this. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kelon. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two Moabite, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kelon died, but so that the women was left without her two sons and her husband. Then Naomi rose with her daughter-in-law to return with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. And had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me. The Lord grants you to find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should say I have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
Then they lifted their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where, I go, I, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do also to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. As we consider this short story, I wonder who is the main character of it. The title, as we think about it, makes us come to the conclusion this story is about Ruth. And very well the case is that Ruth is a character in the story. She plays a very important part in the story from beginning to end. Although as you consider just that short passage we have just read, and as you read on down through it, you begin to understand that really the stories are not so much about Ruth, but perhaps even about Naomi. As you consider Naomi's really important role throughout this, uh, encouraging her daughter-in-laws to return, and leading even into chapter 2, how Naomi is the one who teaches Ruth uh, about the sort of courtship relationships there in Israel. Naomi is the one who's compelling Ruth and encouraging Ruth and the one who's really speaking. Naomi is the one that has the most talking of all the characters in the story. But as we consider even Naomi not being sort of the main character, we can consider Boaz. Boaz is an important character, as we'll find in the weeks ahead, as you read on through the story, or maybe you're familiar with it. Boaz is an important character to this story. Maybe, maybe this is really about Boaz. Or maybe it's not even about Boaz. Maybe it's a story really about Boaz's son, Obed. That son that Ruth will bear. That son that will eventually become the grandfather of King David. And so perhaps the story is really about David. And many would argue that the story of Ruth is really about King David. About legitimizing King David. So to spoil the ending of the story, kind of spoiler alert, if you've never read the book of Ruth, right? Ruth marries Boaz, and they have a kid, and that kid ends up, ends up being the grandfather of King David. And if you don't know who King David is, King David is the pinnacle character in all of the Old Testament. Greater than Moses, King David sits atop the rest of them, and then King David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And so, as we consider King David, King David's great-great-grandmother wasn't even an Israelite. How dare he be a king in Israel? 
He has mixed blood in him. And so we consider these various things. My hope this morning is to argue that Ruth is not the main character, that Naomi is not the main character, that Obed and David are not the main characters, but that God is the main character of this story. Ruth, the second only book in all of the Old Testament that is named after a woman. And the second one that's named after a non-Israel, a Gentile woman. Esther and Ruth, both women, but Ruth, unique, and that she is not a covenant child of God. So we want to lean into that meaning. We want to lean into what does this mean? What, What do I mean that God is the one in control? This is the summary of this chapter and I think the whole book. Even in the midst of darkness, God is still working. Even in the midst of darkness, God is still working. Let's begin by looking and just sort of delving into the story and some of these important things. This is a narrative passage. We're not going to be able to look at every little uh, piece of it. We're going to try to look at it as a big chapter and think about it in a big way. But what do I mean that in the midst of darkness? Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 1. The writer of this story, who is unknown, we don't know who wrote this, begins with this dark cloud, if you will. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. As we consider just on the surface, a famine is never a good thing. In a day and age in which McDonald's is on every corner, we don't often feel what it would be like to live in a famine. Perhaps one of you today in this size of a room maybe has been in a period or a place, a country that has experienced a famine. Maybe in your own life there's a a bit of famine, maybe a lack of resources, a lack of feeding. But in our country it's hard to understand there being a famine in the land. But here in this particular time period when Ruth lived, when Naomi is there, when Elimelech is there in Israel, there is a famine in the land. But even more darker than this famine is this this phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. I know many of you that are in Steve's Sunday school class have been considering those dark days of judges. If you want your stomach, stomach to turn, if you want your heart to be ripped literally out from your chest, I encourage you to read the book of Judges and see the depravity of the human heart. If you think humans are good, read the book of Judges. The conclusion is they are wicked and evil, even the children of God. Turn over with me one page uh, to that last phrase, that last sentence of the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, One page over, final verse of chapter 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That that is the constant refrain throughout the entire book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And and now that may sound familiar to our day and age, and and it really is, isn't it? Isn't that a good summation of our own day and age? Everybody kind of does what they think is right in their own eyes. But here the author in Judges points to the particular problem. The reason why everyone did what was right in his own eyes was because there was no king in Israel. 
And so the working out of that problem, that tension that's created in the book of Judges is resolved, beginning to be resolved, excuse me, in the book of Ruth, and then finds its culmination in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. So if you take Judges through 1st and 2nd Samuel all together, you see Ruth in there is a great transition from chaos to order. From the period of anarchy and sin and living in light of our own way to living under God's way and submitting to God's leadership. In the middle is this story of Ruth. And we are told from the onset that it is a deplorable situation. They are living in Bethlehem. And I don't want to get into the gory details of Bethlehem, but Bethlehem wasn't that serene place that we remember from Christmas time with the cute little character sitting in a manger. Bethlehem was the ghetto. Bethlehem was the place where women were taken and raped and killed. It was the place of complete chaos and evil. You can just read the stories there at the end of the book of Judges to get the gory details that the author gives to us to give a glimpse of how wicked it was. Bethlehem was not the place of blessing. That house of bread, which is what Bethlehem means, the house of bread, the house there where bread, there was no bread there, there was no blessing. And what we find is God is bringing a famine on the land. God is the one who is judging the nation. The Deuteronomy 28 curses are being unleashed on the land just as God had promised. If you are unfaithful to me, if you disobey my word, if you do not walk according to my word, you will be punished. And what we see here, the outset of Ruth, is that God's people are being punished because of their sin. God is cursing them. But not only are they cursed, we see the family of Elimelech is cursed. Elimelech, we are told, flees and goes to Moab. Now you may not be brushed up on your Old Testament history, but Moab, the Moabites, were not necessarily the friends of Israel. Uh, They were the ones that sent out the false prophets and tried to get the nation to divert away from God. They were often trying to come in and attack the nation. Uh, And so Elimelech takes his family to a foreign land with people who hate him. And we don't much more than that. We're not particularly told that what he does is sin. But we know from Deuteronomy that it was not sanctioned by God. Beyond that, we see that they further break God's word by his sons marrying Moabitess women. Israelites were forbidden from marrying other nations. They were only to marry within their particular tribe. But here we see Elimelech's sons, Malon and Kelon, marrying Moabite women. And you might think, well, golly, is God a racist? Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he allow them to marry? The issue was not race. The issue was worship. The issue was that these Moabitess women were idolatrous. They had gods that they worshipped. They had figurines that they would bow down to. 
And why God is destroying the Canaanite people is because he is eradicating this idolatrous worship. And why the people were to eradicate them from the land was so that there was they were not tempted to worship these idols. And so Elimelech's boys married these two women, Orpha and Ruth. But we see the curse even continues into Orpha and to Ruth. We are told that not only Elimelech dies, and so Naomi receives sort of a curse from God. She's punished by God, if you will. It seems as with, that's what we could kind of think, that maybe God is punishing Naomi, punishing Elimelech. Elimelech dies. We don't know particularly the circumstances of that. But we see also, look with me at verse 5. Excuse me, back up to verse 4. These, that is, Malon and Kelon, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And notice this sentence here. They lived uh, there about ten years. Both Malon and Kelon died so that the women was left without her two sons and her husband. They don't have children over a ten-year period of time. That's problematic. There's something wrong. There's something going on here. So not only do we see Elimelech and Naomi under suffering, we see also Malon and Kelon are without children, and ultimately Orpah and Ruth are left husbandless and childless. Now in our day and age, it's not really unheard of for women to live on their own, for women to be able to successfully live without a husband or without a father. That's not particularly problematic in our society, though it's not ideal and it is difficult. In this society, in this particular time and place, this was devastating. Not only did they lose their protection, they lost their providers. It's not as if a woman could go out and get a job the next day. In a moment, they were turned into beggars. In a moment, they were turned into those who had to rely on others in order to provide for them. They were helpless in a foreign land without protection and without provision. Or so it seemed. And through this deplorable and difficult time, we see something glorious. Through their suffering... God is working. If you consider this story, we are thinking and and talking about today an insignificant family. Some nobodies from Bethlehem who God would use to bring about a redeemer. Who God would use to bring about the redemption not only of this family, but of the whole world. And as we consider suffering this morning, as we consider what God has done in this particular family, I want us to sort of outline three big ideas about God. So that sort of the main idea here is that God is working in the midst of darkness. So even when the clouds are thick and dark, we can trust that God is still in control. That God is sovereignly control over all things, even our suffering. Number two, God 
is working for his own glory. Even our suffering brings God glory. Even our tears bring God glory. And thirdly, God rewards those who suffer faithfully. God rewards those who suffer faithfully. As we consider in this passage, as we begin to move through the narrative, we know that Naomi doesn't stay there. The girls don't stay. We heard in God's word that they have heard in the fields of Moab that God has relented from his judgment against them in verse 6, that now God has blessed the nation again, that God has not. And, And what I want you to see in that is that God is in control. God brings the famine and God takes the famine away. God is using these circumstances to bring about his purposes. And I just wonder, do you have room in your theology about God to have a God that would allow you to suffer? Not only allow you to suffer, but purpose it. Actually take you into suffering. Not just say, you know, I'm going to let it happen say that God made it happen. You see, the theology of the Bible is that God not only allows it, he makes it happen. Isn't that the case with Ruth and Naomi? All throughout this story, we see God behind the scenes working and moving this family. Do you think that it was just an accident that this family left Do you not see God's sovereignty in that he brought this famine on the land, knowing that Elimelech would flee, knowing that they would marry these Moabite women? In fact, God has purposed this. This is not an accident. God is moving this for his own glory. And he does it by his sovereign hand. God is sovereign even over our suffering. This is the lesson of Job. And in fact, in many places in the ancient scriptures, uh, when they were compiled together, the book of Ruth wasn't here in our, in where it is in our Bibles. In fact, some of the ancient scrolls had Ruth nestled in between the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. Imagine as you conclude that refrain in the book of Proverbs with the Proverbs 31 woman and then open up the book of Ruth and begin to see a Proverbs 31 woman live her life. The story here we see though is God's story about how he is working for his own glory and Naomi recognizes that. One thing we do not want to conclude, I think, from Naomi is that she is sinning by what she is saying. I don't think Naomi is sinning in what Naomi is giving us some good theology. So let's look at some of it. First in verse 8. 
He, she's encouraging her daughters to go home. She's encouraging them, look, go home to your family. Go home. I, there's nothing I can do for you. I can't provide for you. I can't, I can't marry for you. I go home. And look at the prayer that she prays for Orpah and for Ruth. But go, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law. Go, return each of you to her mother's house. And here's the prayer. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grants you rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them as they walked. In this passage, Ruth uses, excuse me, Naomi uses a word. May God deal kindly with you. Now, this word may not ring particularly clear in our ear. It may just, oh, that's great. God is kind. That's nice. Yeah, that's nice. Oh, but this word would have rung so clearly in the ears of those Israelites that heard the story. Throughout the story, one author questioned what, what is the story about? And one author concluded this. Is this story uh, really seeking to answer this particular question? Is God, are our people, excuse me, more kind than God? Are people more kind than God? Is Ruth and Naomi more kind than God is? is? Is Boaz more kind than God is? Or is it the kindness of God that is rather on display here in the story of Ruth? And, and brothers and sisters, I wonder, do you find it that when God is working to bring and purpose your suffering, that it is a kind act? It is strange for Naomi to use this word kindness when they are suffering. In our world, in our day and age, we do not often equate God's kindness with our suffering. We are like Job's friends. We think that there is something wrong with us, not God's kindness. But here, Ruth is being prayed for by Naomi. May the Lord deal kindly with you. May he show kindness to you in your suffering by, look, in verse 9, giving you a husband. And so I want you to see the irony of this whole thing in this section, this sort of section from verses 8 and 6 all the way down through 14. Naomi is struggling to have faith, but yet Ruth is demonstrating faith. Naomi is praying the right prayer, but is unwilling to see God's hand in working it out. She knows the God of the universe, Naomi does. She knows that God is a kind God, and that word is, is that chesed love of God, that covenant-keeping love of God, the everlasting love. The NIV translates that. God's everlasting love, His covenantal love. May God's covenantal love be upon you, Ruth and Orpah, in finding rest in the house of her husband. And brothers, the story of Ruth is much about the answer to that prayer, how God's kindness is being lived out in the lives of these people, that God is being kind. In suffering, it is a time for God to display His kindness among the nations. And I just wonder... Do you believe that? Do you see God's good purposes in your suffering? We're going to consider a passage in a moment. Is, but that God is kind in suffering. I want you to notice here also in verses 16. Verses 16. And she said to him, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said to her, Do not urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you. For where I go, I, 
for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Ruth had a resolve. She had a faith unlike anyone. She was willing to go and follow her mother-in-law to provide for her mother-in-law. She yet had hope even when Naomi didn't have hope. And so this story is not only a story that's seen us about God, but a story about Ruth and her faithfulness even in the midst of suffering and encouraging us to have hope in the midst of suffering. If you have your Bibles open, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5. We'll get back to Ruth in just a moment. Romans chapter 5. My hope this morning is for you to understand something about suffering, about God's kindness in that suffering. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says some strange words. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We kind of pause there and we say, yeah, amen. Oh, we have hope and God's glory and it's wonderful to be saved. Then comes verse 3. Not only that, not only are we rejoicing, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not part us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How can God, how can Paul in his right mind say that God is loving yet let us suffer? That's exactly what God does. He allows us to suffer. He even purposes our suffering so that it might bring about his love. It's because of his love that God does these things. It's because of his care for his people. It's his kindness to us. But we see not also is it his kindness. We see also that God rewards those who have faith. As we continue down through this story in Ruth, we see that the women return. The women come home. And as Naomi approaches the city of Bethlehem, as they return back to Bethlehem, we see the townspeople are stirred, they're excited, they wonder, who is this woman who has come back? Who is this? Is that Naomi? Oh, how the years have not been kind to Naomi. Oh, how the death of her husband and now her sons has broken her. You can see it on her face. It's not the same Naomi. The one who went away full has come back empty. The one that went away blessed has come back famished. And in verse 20, we see her in this refrain, Do not call me Naomi. Naomi meant pleasant. Naomi, right, she wasn't pleasant anymore. But she was bitter. Bitterness had settled into her heart. Her mind had been closed. She was unable to see God's kindness. 
Though she said the right words, it seems as if she was disconnected from who God was. She didn't understand that God rewards those who, in the midst of suffering, have faith. And here again, she testifies that it was the Lord who brought all of this upon her. And that it's true that God had brought upon her. But brothers and sisters, do you see the hope of the gospel? It's hard to see. You could perhaps miss it. Verse 21. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back. Empty. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Tells us that. We do not come to Christ full. But empty. Naomi had to learn that truth the hard way. That when we are full, we are unwilling to receive anything from the Lord. But it's only when we are empty that we receive from the Lord. And so it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we do not go to God. We don't come with any good works, but rather we trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross for our salvation. There we have hope. There we trust. We, we don't have anything in us, right? Not in me. In the cross alone I cling. But the question I have for you this morning is, is Naomi's statement true? It is not. I went away full, but I've come back empty. I've come back without anything, without nothing. I am without it. She had not come back empty. She had come back with Ruth. She had come back with the one through whom God was going to bring about the redemption of his people. Friends, I wonder if often in your life you cannot see God. Sometimes it's because of our sin we're unable to see God in our lives. We're unable to see God working. But I wonder if you've made statements like Naomi has. God has taken everything from me, hasn't he? Is that true? Has God really extinguished all? Today, as we consider that in the midst of suffering, that God is kind, kind to bring us into suffering, he is doing it for his own glory, to bring about our hope in him, and to demonstrate his love us, and that he rewards those who faithfully endure suffering, those who do not give up and who do not quit, but who, like Ruth, resolve to worship God. Let's pray. Eternal Father in heaven, we give praise and glory to you, and we ask that your word would penetrate our hearts. Lord, our desire this morning is that we would know you better, we'd know your word grow in gospel grace. 
desire to rest in your providential hand. For even when we are without, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. May we find sufficiency in Christ alone. In his name we do pray. Amen. As we transition.